than you think. Open up your mind's eye and prepare yourself for SpectraVision. special treat for you today. Um, we have Professor Henry Armitage of the Tales of the Orna Library podcast reading The Hound from H.P. Lovecraft, and afterwards I'm going to interview him. So without further ado, here is The Hound, read by Professor Henry Armitage. In my tortured ears, there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint distant baying as of some gigantic hound. It is not dream, it is not, I fear, even madness, for too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts. St. John is a mangled corpse. I alone know why. And such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplace of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale. St. John and I followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could help us. And this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Huysmans were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which even in my present fear I mentioned was shame and timidity. That hideous extremity of human outrage the abhorred practice of grave robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions, or catalog even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place, where with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we had assembled an universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room, far, far underground, 
where huge winged demons carved a basalt and onyx vomited from wide grinning mouths weird green and orange light. And hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death and the lines of red charnel things hand in hand woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odors our moods most craved. Sometimes the scent of pale funeral lilies, sometimes the narcotic incense of the imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful, soul-upheaving stenches of an uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies alternating with comely, lifelike bodies, perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there containing skulls of all shapes and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There, one might find the rotting bald pates of famous noblemen and the fresh and radiantly golden heads of the newly buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio, bound in tanned human skin, held certain unknown and unnameable drawings which it was rumored Goya had perpetrated but dared not acknowledge. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed, brass, and woodwind, on which St. John and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemonical ghastliness whilst in a multitude of inlaid ebony caskets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot in particular that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorial events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lightning effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would almost totally destroy for us that aesthetic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous, grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. St. John was always the leader, and he it was who led the way at last to that mocking, accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumor and legendary. The tales of one buried for five centuries, who had himself been a ghoul in his time and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulcher. I can recall the scene in these final moments. The pale autumnal moon over the graves, casting long, horrible shadows. The grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass and crumbling slabs the vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivy church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects that danced like death fires under the yews in a distant corner, 
the odors of mold, vegetation, and less explicable things that mingled feebly with night wind from over swamps and seas. And, worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard this suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, for he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this selfsame spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remember how we delved into the ghoul's grave with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves, the grave, the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death fires, the sickening odors, the gentle moaning night wind, and the strange, half-heard directionless baying of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mold, and beheld a rotting oblong box crusted with mineral deposits from the long undisturbed ground. It was incredibly tough and thick, but so old that we pried it open and feasted our eyes upon what it held. Much, amazingly much, was left of the object despite the lapse of 500 years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing which had killed it, held together with surprising firmness, and we gloated over the clean white skull and its long, firm teeth and its eyeless sockets that once glowed with a charnel fervor like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching winged hound or sphinx with a semi-canine face and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression of its features was repellent, the extreme savoring at once of death, bestiality and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription in characters which neither Saint John nor I could identify. And on the bottom, like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet, we knew that we must possess it. That this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the centuried grave. Even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it. But as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature which sane and balanced readers know. But we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the formidable Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of the inaccessible Lang in Central Asia. All too well did we trace this sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist. Lineaments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavern-eyed face of its owner, and closed up the grave as we found it. As we hastened from the abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we could not be sure. 
So, too, as we sailed the next day from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint distant baying of some gigantic hound in the background. But the autumn wind moaned sad and wan, and we could not be sure. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone and without servants in a few rooms of an ancient manor house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of a visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be a frequent fumbling in the night, not only around the door, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once we fancied that a large, opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it, and another time we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion, investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination, which still prolonged in our ears the faint, far baying we thought we had heard in Holland. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burned a strangely scented candle before it. We read much in Al-Hazred's Necronomicon about its properties and about the relation of ghost souls to the objects it symbolized and were disturbed by what we read. Then terror came. On the night of September 24th, 19, I heard a knock at my chamber door. Fancying at St. John's, I bade the knocker enter, but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused St. John from his sleep, he professed entire ignorance of the event and became as worried as I. It was the night that the faint, distant baying over the moon became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, whilst we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door, which led to the library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for, besides our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard, as if receding far away, a queer combination of rustling, tittering and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses, we did not try to determine. We only realized with the blackest of apprehensions that the apparently disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language. After that, we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements but sometimes it pleased us to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess, and every night that demonic baying rolled over the windswept moor, always louder and louder. On October 29th, we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the old manor house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November 18th, 
when St. John, walking home after dark from the dismal railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams had reached the house, and I hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague black cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him, and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was whisper, The amulet. The damned thing. He then collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens, and bumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demonic sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it. And when I saw on the dim-lighted moor a wide, nebulous shadow swooping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I arose, trembling, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisances before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed the following day for London, taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights, I heard the baying again, and before a week was over I felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening, as I strolled on Victoria Embankment for some needed air, I saw a black shape obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water. A wind, stronger than the night wind, rushed by, and I knew what had befallen St. John must soon befall me. The next day, I carefully wrapped the green jade amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent sleeping owner I knew not, but I felt that I must try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was and why it had pursued me were questions still vague. But I had first heard the baying in the ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including St. John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into the nethermost abysses of despair, when, at an inn in Rotterdam, I discovered that thieves had despoiled me of the sole means of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror, for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighborhood. In a squalid thieves' den, an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace, and those around had heard all night a faint, deep, insistent note as of a gigantic hound. So at last, I stood again in the unwholesome churchyard where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered, frosty grass and cracking slabs, and the ivy church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky, and the night wind howled maniacally from over frozen swamps and frigid seas. The baying was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated. 
and frightened away an abnormally large horde of bats which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither unless to pray or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to calm the white thing that lay within. But whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption when a lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow from my spade. Finally, I reached the rotting, oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed. For crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp and sanguined fangs yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave form, those grinning jaws, a, a deep sardonic bay as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade. I merely screamed and ran away idiotically, my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind. Claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death aside a bacchanal of bats from nigh black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the baying of that dead, fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web wings closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion, which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable. Hello, uh, I'm here with Professor Henry Armitage of the Tales from the Orne Library. Thank you for joining me today. Yes, of course. Absolutely. So I just wanted to get right into it and talk about the Hound, the, um, the story that you uh, narrated for us. Oh, why did you choose that specific story? Um, it's a very interesting story, in my opinion. It is very different from a lot of his um, other work as it doesn't it it deals with a different side of the mythos where um, you know you've got the stories like the call of Cthulhu or Dagon or Nyarlathotep where it specifically deals with this unknown and new mythology whereas the hound um, the Monster almost seems to be a vampire, and it's, he's kind of drawing on 
already existing mythology and already existing folklore. And I think that's such an interesting twist to see in his work. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to say that you're probably the expert on H.P. Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos, at least in terms of the two of us. Would you give um, the listeners kind of a brief uh, rundown of what the Cthulhu mythos entails? Okay. So, basically, is it leans heavily into the cosmic horror ideal of humanity is meaningless and insignificant. You have these great powerful beings like Azathoth for Azathoth, for example. Um, he is known as the demon sultan, the demon sultan, the blind idiot god. And as part of the mythos, we are only figments of his imagination while he dreams and that he could theoretically wake up and we would blink out of existence. And so this mythos um, really deals with, like I said, that idea of insignificance. And so I think most people are familiar with, um, obviously, Cthulhu. It's named after the uh, Cthulhu. You talked about Cthulhu. Um, a lot of people know who he is but a lot of people don't know who he is um can you can you just give me a little rundown about cthulhu yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so cthulhu is um so a little bit of before i go into explaining what cthulhu is in this mythos you've got some uh classifications there's there are the elder gods which are like azathoth like i mentioned there's nyarlathotep uh, the Crawling Chaos, uh, Yogg-Sothoth, The Gate, and those are kind of the uh, the primary de- deities with uh, quotation marks. Um, and then below them you have the Great Old Ones, and um, they are lesser beings of sorts, almost demigods in a way, and Cthulhu falls into that category where he is not a god per se, but he is a priest. Um, he is this, uh, he is described as this almost, this uh, being with a great cephalopod-like uh, head and draconic wings and a humanoid-like body. Um, he resides on Earth in a sunken city called Relea. And one day he will awaken and usher in the end of the world. So that's a little background about Cthulhu and his... Uh, his cults are numerous and widespread. It's, it's very fascinating, um, especially considering that uh, the, these stories came from, you know, the early 1900s, and there are a lot of heavy elements of science fiction and as well as horror, but almost more modern senses of science fiction. Um, what would you say that H.P. Lovecraft's influence has been on the genre of science fiction and horror? I would say that he has had a great influence on everything, um, especially when you deal with, like, the outer space elements. Because, yes, you have some of these... Um, kind of eldritch, magical type, in a way, type beings. But then you have, like, 
actual alien races like the Migo or the great race of Yith or the Elder Things. And I think that has, um, that, uh, I think that has translated over the years. And uh, you can kind of see influence of that in like the kind of um, tin foil spacesuit type science fiction of the 50s um, where you find these like really weird looking aliens and whatnot um and i think that has his description of uh, his ability to describe the undescribable has i feel helped in areas like science fiction and horror where it depends on being able to describe the undescribable right so I'm going to shift gears a little bit then. Um, what what brought you into, um, like, what introduced you to the Lovecraft mythos and what, what kind of started that interest for you? Uh, well, I heard about the name Cthulhu um, in other uh, games and such, but... Uh, to be perfectly honest, it was just exposure. Uh, a friend in high school was reading the H.P. Lovecraft's books, and uh, I was I was curious about it, so I kind of looked it up on it. Oh, so that's who what Cthulhu is, and then it just kind of I just kind of absorbed it. You know, I watched things on the internet. I started to like seek it out, and it really just hooked me in a way that I never expected it would, and it's caught me. Um, and now I just can't stop. Can't let go. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a very, very cool and different kind of style. Um, you don't really see a lot of it nowadays anymore as far as, like, new works, I feel like, at least in terms of of uh, books and movies. Well, maybe I'm wrong. There are a few Lovecraft movies and books that are kind of coming out around... Wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's starting to make a comeback. You know, you've got the Colorado Space movie coming out here in a minute and uh, soon. Actually, it is is out. I oh. uh, saw that it's on uh, Amazon Prime. Okay, right now. well, I stand corrected. It is out. Um, so that's definitely going to int- introduce a bunch of new people to the to the genre. And then you've got the prevalence of um, all the tabletop RPGs, specifically the Call of Cthulhu RPG, which is. Um, also branching out to new audiences. Uh, Absolutely. And, and speaking of the tabletop RPG, that's one of the big things you do on your uh, podcast. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you uh, tell us about your podcast? All right. So the Tales from the Orn Library is an actual play Call of Cthulhu podcast. Um, we mainly do one-shots. Uh, single adventures that span over four episodes. Um, They're very uh, short and easily digestible. Um, And then in between those sessions, I do readings of the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, So far, uh, we have only done the color out of space, Um, but we are currently working on uh, doing an episode about the Elder Gods, namely... Azathoth, Nyarlathotep, and Dagon. Awesome. Well, that's that's very exciting. And and where can uh, the listeners find your show if um, 
if they want to check that out. Yeah, so it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Music, it's pretty much on every platform that it can be on, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, um, just look up Tales from the Orn Library. Um, we also have a website, uh, talesfromtheornlibrary.com, where you can see all the handouts that we use and all the pictures that are used in game, and you can listen to the episodes straight from the website, so that's also an option. Oh, that's that's very cool. Now, um, if if any of our listeners want to start getting into the actual play, uh, what's a good place for them to start? I would definitely I would definitely start with our first series, The Dead of Winter, um, because that introduces um, that introduces some major players that are going to be reoccurring throughout the rest of the. Uh, showtime until they eventually die, which in Call of Cthulhu is a not an if, <laughs> but when. Right. <laughs> um, it also really introduces some major themes of like uh, maintaining sanity. Um, it introduces some of the Elder Gods. I'm not going to say which one because that's a bit a bit of a spoiler. Uh, but definitely start with the Dead of Winter. Awesome. And um, I guess I mean to clarify, if they're interested in playing the game themselves, where uh, where would they start looking to get into that? Oh yeah, um, it's really easy. They the um, Chaosium, the company that makes Call of Cthulhu. Uh, how do you spell that? Chaosium, C H A O S I U M. Awesome. Thank you. Um, yep. They have this really great starter set. Um, it's it's pretty cheap. It comes with a, uh, a quick set of rules. Um, comes with a bunch of blank character sheets and a bunch of pre-made character sheets. It has a solo adventure, which we have already done, the Alone Against the Flames. And it also has three pre-made adventures or scenarios that you can run with up to two to five players. And it's a real easy start. Um, I'd highly recommend it. And do they? They don't need a whole bunch of extra equipment or or anything to play that, correct? Nope. They just need one set of dice. And, and one and set of dice is uh, pretty cheap. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you could get started that, with this with uh, maybe just a little over thirty bucks. That's not bad. That's not bad. Not a sponsor, though, but... <laughs> <laughs> not a sponsor. Yeah. Well, awesome. So one final question for you real quick. Okay. Um, what is a good place for our listeners to start if they want to start getting into the Cthulhu mythos and, like, what are the, the best stories to start with? Okay. So... I would honestly start to uh, look things up online on YouTube. Um, there's some very good videos out there that uh, really kind of explains things a little better. Um, but then also definitely read some of the stories. Um, I can't recommend that enough. I never really uh, read many of them until I really started doing the show. And ever since, I've really in fallen in love with his writing style. Um, the Colorado Space is a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, can't go wrong with that. Uh, obviously, The Call of Cthulhu is a pretty good one. But then um, this one I've been um, saving for uh, 
later on in the show. Um, but the Mount at the Mountains of Madness is a phenomenal story, and uh, it's just, it's so so well done and so good. Uh, that's a very good one to check out. Awesome. Well, uh, folks, please uh, please remember to check out Tales from the Orna Library, and uh, this has been um, Professor Henry Armitage. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I just wanted to thank Professor Henry Armitage once more for being interviewed and and being part of the show. Please remember to check out his podcast that is Tales from the Orna Library. Also, I just wanted to also thank the uh, music. The composer today was Graham Chapman. He makes a lot of uh, Lovecraftian music inspired by um, some of the uh, Lovecraftian games. And I just want to take a minute and just say uh, be safe out there. I know these are trying times and uh, things are a little difficult now, but please be safe and wash your hands. Keep your social distance up. We're going to get through this and everything's going to be good on the other side. And so... I'll leave you with that, and until next time, keep your third eye wide open. Mm-hmm.